All right, turn with me as we continue our series on Samuel Insights uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, and you may notice that our readings today came from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, we're gonna, we've been chasing the readings, now we're basically caught up, and we will be even next week too as we cover... Uh, the next episodes here in the story of Samuel. Before we read, though, I want to remind you, as I have been at the beginning of each of these, remember we're kind of doing one of these things previously on Samuel. My, my, my voice was better last week, but you get the point, right? Previously on Samuel, we've talked about how the book itself is a transitional book. It's moving from a confederacy, group of tribes, of being ruled by judges... Not the kind that wear the black robes. Uh, They're more um, in a kingly role than that. To now, a monarchy. To now, a nation. And we also have looked at the character Samuel, who the book is named after, who dies in 1 Samuel, uh, as also a transitional character. We are also answering the question that fundamentally, I believe, is being asked in both of the books, which is seen as one book, right? This is one piece. This is one uh, work here, but split into two different scrolls. Those two questions are this. Why is there a king in Israel? I mean, if you don't have the book of Samuel, nowhere else in the Bible does it detail the rise of kingship like Samuel does. You say, well, hang on. Chronicles does. Does it now? Because it leaves out quite a bit and mainly focuses on David alone. Deleting Saul from almost everything. Deleting all the other... (laughs) One of these days we'll have to do a sermon series on Chronicles because the chronicler has a very rigid thing he is following. Uh, it's, It's... He's interesting. So, why is there a king in Israel? We're learning that. What is the intended nature of this kingdom, and of kingship in general. In other words, it's, the book is questioning, what is the purpose then? Why would God allow them to have a king when he was supposed to be king? Well, he's got a plan. And that's one of the motifs that we've been seeing that is interwoven like streams uh, in an aerial, from an aerial view. You see how they work together from this large aerial view, and that's what we've basically been flying over these chapters, seeing a few things. One is this, God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. Despite human evil, God is at work, and God will raise up a messianic king, and ultimately a kingdom, his kingdom, that will last forever that we're enjoying right now. It's his kingdom. Notice these words from 2 Samuel 7, and we'll start reading with verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you, wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. God is the divine gardener, isn't he? He's not in a hurry. He likes to garden. It's crazy. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. We heard that this morning. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That is, Nathan the prophet. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We're so thankful that you have spoken. (laughs) Speak now, Lord, for your servant hears in your name. Amen. Saul and sons, kind of like Sanford and sons, Saul and sons are dead. They're done. Their house has been destroyed. David is now king of Judah at the end of chapter 4 as we left off. Uh, And after much bloodletting, the death toll we followed last week. If you didn't hear that, it's online. You can follow that and listen to that. Death toll went up high, uh, but he is king of Judah. And we get these chapters now which focus on victory. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all victorious chapters for David. Um. The prophecy, in some sense, is beginning to be fulfilled now as, as he doesn't have complete rest over his enemies, but he certainly has victory over his enemies. Um, and so what we see in chapter 5 is this, David as a national king. So we're starting our journey, looking out the window again down here at Samuel. We can't park and go tour around each chapter. That would, that would be impossible in a 30-minute segment. But what we can do is see the big stuff. And in 5, here's the big thing that's happening, is David is receiving a lot of new stuff. (laughs) If you actually read the chapter, he receives a new empire. The 11 tribes in the north, which made up Israel, remember he was just king of Judah at this point in 4, now in 5 they come to him in hearing that Saul is dead, And that David is defeating his enemies. And they say, hey, we know who you are. We want to be with you. We're with you. So now he is king of both Israel and Judah. Which, as you remember, uh, we detailed. There's always this sort of understanding that they're different. But they're united under David. They're united under Solomon properly. And in some sense united under Saul. Those were the only kings 
that ever ruled that, they, that both of those kingdoms, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, were together in unity. He gets a new empire. He gets a new capital city. He takes Jerusalem. He was in Hebron. And now he moves to Jerusalem, takes over the city. It will be known as the city of David. And this is where the capital will be. He gets a new palace, verse 11. So he builds him a house, which in building a house, you're no longer transient, right? He's been running. Remember? The end, all of the end of 1 Samuel, he's on the move dodging uh, Saul. He builds him a house. Here I am. I'm establishing myself. Puts his name on the city. Come and get me. You know what I mean? He's no longer being the chaste one. Instead, he's on the move. And he's being victorious. A new empire, a new capital city, a new palace, and a new family. He begins to accumulate wives. And he has children from these wives. And then lastly, in this chapter, there is a new confidence in him in God, but also in himself, that he is following God because of the victory. Blessings come with responsibility is one thing that David, like us, will learn. And so, Luke 12 says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It's kind of that Spider-Man thing, right? David, like Spider-Man, understands that with response, with, what is it called? I always get it wrong. With great power. Yes, thank you, Christopher. With great power comes great responsibility, right? And that's the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6, David becomes the ark custodian. Remember, we're now getting back to the ark story. We've, We've kind of put it on pause, right? You know how stories do. They'll bring up a theme and then it'll go away, right? Remember, last thing we saw was the ark was defeating an idol. Remember, the idol fell, broke off his hands, fell. He was worshiping Yahweh, and the, they sent that ark away. It went to stay with someone in Israel for a while, just hidden in, at his house. Now that David has established his kingdom here in Jerusalem and his palace, he says, hey, we need to bring the ark home. We have a home now. We have a capital city. And so... This chapter details for us David doing something right, bringing the ark home, but in the wrong way. Have you ever done that? Because I have. (laughs) Done something right, but I did it the wrong way. Maybe it needed to be done, but it was done wrong. And someone else always pays when that happens. And in this case, David is at fault for Uzzah's death. You remember what happens, right? They get a brand new car. I can just imagine. David's like, look, we're going to move this thing. But I want a new car to move it in. We're not going to move it in something that's going to break down. So they get a new cart, horse. And they put the ark on it. And as it's going down through there, it hits a bump. And it's going to fall on the ground. And this fellow Uzzah, who was standing with his brother beside the ark, reaches out to stabilize it. And it says that the anger of Yahweh broke out against him and God killed him. It's actually one of the few cases in the Bible where God 
personally kills someone. <laughs> uh, it's kind of shocking because you're thinking, whoa. I mean, you talk about throwing a wet blanket on something that's good and, you know, everything is going great. He's conquered and victorious and he's doing something right, bringing God to the capital city in a box. And God says, it's a little more to it than that. You've become too comfortable with me. And he strikes him dead, much like when God is establishing the priesthood, Nadab and Abihu are struck dead. God had just said, use this particular wood when you make the sacrifice. They went down, bought the cheap stuff from Walmart, and said, I'm sure this will do. We'll save us some money. And God burned them up. Killed them. I had a professor that preached one time seven times that God kills someone in the Bible. And, you, you know, it even stretches. You say, well, whew, aren't we glad that we serve a different God than the Old Testament God? Well, I've got news for you. In Christianity, that is one God. Yahweh is the same God in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, when you see me, you see Yahweh. And you remember the ones who come to church and they try to deceive Peter and say... Hey, look what we've given. And God strikes them both dead. New Testament. He says that the point, Oswalt was the one who preached the message, Dr. Oswalt. (coughs) He says that the point, he believes, in God's specific killings is that these individuals get the punishment that really all of us deserve. We've all treated God with contempt. We've all gotten too comfortable with a lion. You remember from the Chronicles of Narnia, maybe, this one liner that is, is really neat. They're talking to Miss Beaver, the children are, and Lucy brings up the point. She says, oh, he sounds, you know, she's describing this lion, this Aslan, right? And she says, oh, he sounds like someone, I'm paraphrasing, who's huggable and lovable, pettable. And she says, oh, honey, <laughs> Did I not mention he's a lion? <laughs> you, don't, you don't go around petting and caressing a lion. He is, after all, not a tamed lion. And I think it should bring caution to all of our lives because we all become comfortable with the things of God. And it is dangerous. Especially when he comes very near. In this case, he is very near... And Uzzah pays the price because of David's irresponsibility. That was not the way you carried the ark. This is detailed in Numbers 3 through 7. You carry the ark on long poles that are put through the edge of the ark. And you carry it on your shoulders. And the Levites in particular, who were these individuals who were in the care of the things of God. They were the ones to carry it. Not just anyone, not just any way. And so God protects his revelation in a lashing out that shows us that God is both beautiful and dangerous. Don't you remember the writer of Hebrews says this too? He says, don't you remember that our God is a consuming fire? God is not to be played with, especially by those 
who know better. You know, I had a guy I was witnessing to one time back in college. <laughs> I can still see him uh, dancing through the parking lot. And I started witnessing him. He said, look, you believe in the God and stuff, but I hate your God. And, and I can prove that he doesn't exist. He started cussing at God in the middle of the parking lot and dancing around asking God to strike him down, you know. And I was like, God's not going to do that, man. But he might strike down someone that knows better. And he does. Uzzah has God in a box. And he's trying to keep God free of the dirt. And he hits the dirt. We're not responsible for keeping God from falling. But he is for us. We're told in Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is the one who keeps us from falling, not we him. I believe this is a lesson we can learn from this tragic story where the anger of Yahweh breaks out. But do you notice how, again, gracious God is? How many other people, how many times have I snubbed the things of God, taken for granted our Lord? And He's so gracious not to strike me down. David is alive, and he gets angry about this. It says that he actually got angry at God. And for three months, he's seething. And even six months, the ark stays dormant. They don't touch it again. And when they do finally bring it in, what we are told is that David... They bring it in the right way, by the way. We find that out actually in Chronicles, the whole story. And David starts dancing. I mean, he's finally pumped. I mean, he, you know, he goes from being angry at God six months ago now to like, hey, we did it the right way. And he starts dancing, and, you know, his ephod, which is kind of like if I had a robe on, started coming off. If I had a jacket on, it'd be coming off. And he's dancing before the Lord. And Michal, or Michal, uh, not Michael, but Michal, I'm just going to call her Michal because I don't want to have to do that guttural sound again. She, first, in 1 Samuel, helps David out of a window. Do you remember this? Saul, her father is trying to kill David, and she helps him out of a window to escape. Now, from a window, she criticizes the anointed of God. There's two windows in her life. And I think there's two windows in all of our life when we deal with other people. We can either be for them and help them, or we can be there to criticize them. She is reprimanded for this criticism. And she cannot have children. We're not told if it was because of David or if it was because of the Lord. We're just simply told she never had any progeny. God doesn't need our help. He can do stuff himself. And sometimes I've been like, Lord, you need to send me over there to those people because I can do this. And I mean, if you'll just sign me up, man, I'll do it. He's like, I'm I'm sorry, 
who are you again? I thought I was in charge, not you. Oh, okay. You know, again, good intentions like David, but the wrong way. We think things need to be fixed quickly. He's planting a garden. We want one of those, I don't know what they used to be called, but <clears throat> there were these things that bloomed at night. They would, they would, uh, we had them, at, my mom had them when we were growing up. I hadn't thought about this in years. And they would, as soon as it got dust, they would come open, a flower. I mean, you could see it. I mean, choop, 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 boop. It'd come open like that. But it'd be dead by the morning. God's not trying to grow that, is he? He's trying to grow a sequoia. He's trying to grow a tree that, that can provide shade and fruit that lasts. While I'm trying to do these temporary things, he's trying to do something long-term. And we're still talking about Uzzah, aren't we? It's interesting what the text says. She despised him in her heart. So how would the narrator know that? Welcome to historical revelation. God told him. Despised him in her heart. Is there anybody that you despise in your heart? That's one of those moments where you kind of just, you know, <laughs> you don't want to look directly at someone. You kind of, eyes close. I don't want to. But really, do we despise anybody? I may not know. You, other people may not. But God knows. End of chapter 6. Now to 7. David as the head of a house. <laughs> so get this. He's like, look. God, I'm going to build you a house. I've got a great palace here. I'm no longer in a tent. This is nice. I'm going to build you a house. Notice that David does not downsize in order to match God in a tent. The tabernacle, remember, was a tent. He doesn't swap and say, hey, you can have my house, and I will go to the tent. Instead, he says, I'm going to bring God up to my level. In other words, I have a palace, a nice one. I'm going to build you one like this. <laughs> Maybe God is asking some of us to downsize. Maybe he's asking some of us uh, to swap gifts, goods. Are we willing to? Do we really believe it's all his or not? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. But God, God plays a little bit with him here and says, look, um, we're not doing that. But before he does that, Nathan the prophet, the anointed of God, the person who should know what's going on, right? David comes to him and says, hey, I, I really think that the Lord wants to build a house through me for himself. And... There really were, in the ancient Near East, some reasons for building an actual sanctuary, a temple. Uh, one is to bring order, rather than just sort of this anything-goes attitude. Maybe we could load up and pack up tomorrow, right? We know a little bit about that at Harvest Point, don't we? 
It also provides something tangible rather than just merely spiritual. You can see it. It's established in brick and mortar. And it provides a point of assurance. So there are some practical reasons that people would have this thing. And so David comes to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, I'm going to build God a house. And I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to get it done. Now what pastor wouldn't want to build at that point, right? Somebody comes and says, hey, I want to build a church, man. You want a church? You need a church building? I want to pay for it. I'll do the whole thing. I mean, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's certainly from the Lord, you know, <laughs> which is exactly what Nathan does. He says, oh, absolutely. God wants you to do that, brother. Thank you so much. Hallelujah. You know, he's, he's like giving himself high fives in, in, his, in his spirit. And that night, the Bible says that God came to him and said, no, 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 we're not doing that. David has shed too much blood. So here again, you see a principle in the Bible that, that really I'm still chewing on, to be honest with you. It's one where Moses, the friend of God, is not allowed to go into the promised land. It's where David, a man after God's own heart, is forbidden to build a house for God. And that's one of those things where I think it's just above my pay grade. And we have to say, yes, sir. Whatever you want, boss. I think I'd do a great job, though. (laughs) You know, it's one of those kind of things. I think it'd be nice to have. And he says, no. Interestingly, Samuel did something similar, didn't he? The prophet, the anointed of God, the one who should be hearing from God. He looks at Jesse's sons, he says, oh yeah, that big tall one that works out all the time and does CrossFit, he's certainly going to be the next king. And God says, I don't look on the outside. I look on the inside at the heart. He says, yes, sir. See, I think these two guys are great examples of what an anointed leader should be. They don't always have it right. But they're willing to say, I didn't have it all right. But God has said. Lord, help me be that kind of servant for you. House is mentioned 15 times in chapter 7. But it's mentioned in four different ways. Once by the narrator, six times by God, eight times by David. House is mentioned as a royal palace. House is mentioned as a temple. House is mentioned as a royal dynasty. And house is mentioned as a family. House obviously dominates this chapter. Repetition is a good teacher, isn't it? Teachers? Amen? (laughs) It truly is. And he wants to drive home the point that God is the one building the house, not David. David says, I want to build you a house. God says, no, I want to build you a house, big guy. And it's going to be a house that lasts forever because it's bigger than David. Do you see how now we're getting into the substance of what the nature of kingship is about in Israel? The nature of kingship in Israel is not about just the king on the throne in the historical books. It's about pointing 
to a king that will come one day and do the right kind of rulership in the world, a rulership that all Christians are currently living under and enjoying the benefits of. This house will last forever. No, when Lawson Stone, who I, who I met a couple years back at a camp, <coughs> and by the way, a lot of my resources here uh, are not coming from my head. Um, I'm leaning heavily on Victor Hamilton, who I also met last year, but I met Lawson Stone, another Old Testament biblical scholar, uh, two years ago. Here's what he says about this. He says, look, it isn't necessarily bad that God tells us no sometimes. Just like a parent, right? No. He says it's not even rejection. For David, it's redirection. David is thinking short term. He's thinking, man, i got a couple more years left and we've got some money. Let's do this thing. God is thinking about forever and thinking about eternity. There's this kind of funny story, at least it's kind of funny to me. About a <coughs> excuse me, Saudi prince who invited a professional golfer to come to Saudi Arabia to teach him how to golf, right? And so he goes over, he flies, he's nervous, but he flew over there, did it anyway, because he promised all this stuff, and paid for the trip, and all that, he gets over there, teaches the dude to do golf, and they had a great time, sends him back home, and he says, um, expect a gift from me, uh, you know, in the mail. After you get home. He says, okay, great. So he gets home, you know, weeks go by, gets this letter, official letter from the Saudi prince. And it says, you are the proud owner of a, of a new golf club. He says, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. Maybe it's probably lined with diamonds. You know what I mean? Maybe the, the head on that thing is a massive diamond like you've never seen, right? And... He reads further to find out that it's not a golf club that you would hold in your hand, but a golf club that people would play at. It was the deed was behind it for the whole golf club, right? In his thinking, he's thinking short term. He's thinking small gift. The prince was thinking bigger than that, and our king was thinking bigger than that. And he tells David, no, no, redirects it. He has something other in mind. We do, again, it's like the military. We just say yes, sir, to the commander. We don't know the whole plan. And that's the way it's going to work. We have to be okay with that and trust God. God's plans for us are infinitely greater than our plans for God. That's what Stone says. I love that. I read that last night and I was like, wow, this is good. David is interested in a project, he says, a house. God is interested in people. A house. David is interested in achieving for God. God is interested in teaching David how to receive from God. Isn't it difficult sometimes to receive? Especially in a land of plenty. It's actually much easier to wash other people's feet than it is to have someone else wash your feet. It's very uncomfortable. You're in control when you're washing somebody else's feet. You can be applauded. But when you're receiving, none of that can happen.
God chose one family, like he did before with Abraham, now to bless the whole world, and it was David's family. <clears throat> Notice this from Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and so execute justice and righteousness in the land. The prophets understood this prophecy. Then in Matthew 1, the beginning of the New Testament, notice how it begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who? The son of David. Gabriel's message to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a message in Acts chapter 2 that talks about David and how he understood that the Messiah was coming. And then in Romans, Paul speaks of the Son of God concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then the Bible ends, the last chapter in the whole Bible, in Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You think God established his kingdom, his king? He did. And it was through the house of David. Chapters 8 through 10 are seen as David as a warrior. There's a sandwiching. He's got chapter 8 that's about warfare. Chapter 10 that's about warfare. And in the middle is this interesting story of Mephibosheth. That's a tough one to say very quickly. Mephibosheth. His name means shameful. A shameful thing. A desert of a place, even. He is the enemy of the king, right? He's of the house of Saul. Back in the ancient world, the way that you transitioned kings, if it was a different dynasty, was to kill everybody else off so that no one would ever have a right to the throne. And he is a cripple, he's helpless. And he's in hiding, a fugitive. And he's hiding in a place, low debar, which actually means the place of no pasture. Or nowhereville. The back 40 of nothing. And he's probably bitter toward David because, one, David took over his house, Saul's house. But he also, when he was five years old, they quickly grabbed him. And because they heard the word that Saul and Jonathan and sons had died, they grab him, the nurse drops him, and that is the reason for his crippling at five years old. And he's been living in hiding ever since. And interestingly, in this sandwiching between a war story and a war story, in chapter 9, David says this at the beginning. He says, is there anyone that I can do chesed with? Chesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's a term that doesn't show up in the English but in fact is translated many different ways as uh, unfailing love, 
kindness, mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love. Uh, and it is a word that is, has to do with covenant faithfulness, in particular from one who is in power to one who has no power. And David says, I want to find someone in the house of Saul, again, his enemy, to share my love with. And as we prayed over here in the room before service, a couple of you mentioned God seeks us out. And in the same way that God seeks us out, his enemies, so David seeks out Mephibosheth. And in the same way that we were his enemies, he tells us to pull up a, ta- pull up a chair to his table. David tells Mephibosheth when he shows up, you can imagine he probably thought, well, this is it. He's finally got the last of us from Saul's house. And David says, I want to do hesed with you. I want to do kindness and covenant mercy with you forever. He used the same term that was used of him, of God building David a house. He says, I want you to pull up a table, a chair to my table, and you're going to eat here for the rest of your days. Not only that, I'm going to give back to you what was lost and taken from Saul's house, and it's yours. He gives him an inheritance. He adopts him as one of his own. Does this sound like the good news? Pull up a table in the presence of your enemies, Psalm 23. You see, here is a moment where David is being a righteous king, one like God who seeks after us. It's crazy. All the religions of the world... Humans are seeking after the gods and their favor. This God that we serve seeks after us and says, Who can I do mercy and loving kindness, hesed with? I want to do it, even if they're my enemies. Mephibosheth says, Who am I that you would do this? And it's fascinating. He simply says his name, Mephibosheth. The Lord knows your name, doesn't he? Just like Mary in the garden. You remember? This is an instance where just a name is said and that is enough. Mary. That was enough. I've heard the voice of the Lord whisper to me, Marshall, and that was enough. He did not say He did not say it. Sometimes when Jessica says Marshall, it's not good news. It's, but all she says, Marshall. And I'm like, crap. I just stop whatever it is I was doing. I don't even know what I was doing, but I just stop it. Sometimes all we need is a name, don't we? When our name is called. And here's the good news. God (laughs) invites us to his table, just like Mephibosheth. And here we are, lame and crippled, enemies of God. He says, pull up a table. I want to be in covenant with you forever. I want to adopt you into my, I want to protect you for all of your days. Wow, what good news is that? This episode ends with, again, God fighting David's battles. And he wants to fight our battles if we'll simply pull up the chair and trust him and hear him call out our name and know that we are sons and daughters of the high king, the king of heaven. The king come down for us. That's good news, brothers and sisters, friends. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.